All right, kids, you are invited downstairs for your classes. And will the rest of you please take your Bible and uh, meet me in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you know that we are in a series on discipleship. And thus far, we've considered the call and the need. As Christians and as disciples ourselves, we are called to proclaim the beauty and wonder and truth of Jesus Christ while working to win people to Christ and present them complete in Him. And we learn that from uh, Colossians chapter 1, 28 and 29. And this is necessary work because apart from Christ, we are lost, separated from God, and therefore destined for hell. And so as we saw a couple of weeks ago in Matthew chapter 7, that according to Jesus, many people wrongly believe they are going to heaven or that they're right with God when in fact they're not. And so Jesus is urging us to not only assess ourselves and our own religious assumptions, but to help others do likewise so that all would place their full confidence in Him and in His saving work on our behalf. You know, discipleship is not a new concept. In fact... um, it's often discussed in most churches um, in many, many ways. And yet with all the talk of discipleship, uh, I'm wondering, how can we know if it's really happening? In other words, what characterizes those who truly entrust themselves to Christ? What does it mean to follow Jesus or More basically, what are the distinguishing marks of a Christian disciple? Now, these are some of the questions I'd like to consider with you this morning. And for answers, I want us to look back to that moment when Jesus called his very first disciples. Jesus was in the region of Galilee, walking the shore of the Sea of Galilee, when he called Peter and his brother Andrew and then James and his brother John, and to them he said, follow me. And from their response, we learn that key to being a disciple is counting the cost, identifying with Christ, and advancing the cause of Christ as he supplies and strengthens. And so I'd like to read this together with you, Matthew chapter 4. Verses 18 through 22, and then I want to consider these three facets one by one. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea for their fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, 
the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Let's pray. Father, we can imagine that scene and what it would have been like, what it must have been like to be there like these four men just doing our thing when seemingly out from nowhere Jesus comes to us and His call touched their ears and reached down into their hearts and stirred their very souls and effectively changed their lives. What an amazing moment that must have been. And yet in many ways it's just a moment like any other. And so I would pray that for us today in these moments, in this moment we share this morning... (coughs) Considering these things, I pray that you would enable our ability to receive all that you would have for us. That like them, we would hear the call of Jesus Christ this morning. That it would touch our ears and pass through our hearts and reach down into our souls and compel us, constrain us to follow him and effectively change our lives. Will you do that this morning, we pray, through his name. Amen. Have you ever noticed, when reading your Bible, how Jesus often thinned the crowd? So he'd have these great crowds of people following after him, And now it seemed like in those moments, like when the crowds got big, it seemed like that in those moments he was intentional to place before them the cost of discipleship. He once talked about building a tower, saying that when a person sets out to build a tower or build anything for that matter, they first count the costs involved to ensure that they have enough to finish the project. And similarly, he spoke about a king who, before going to war, must first decide if his army can reasonably win the battle. And the point behind both of these examples is that there is a cost to following Jesus that he wants us to understand up front. And therefore, one notable characteristic of a disciple of Christ is that he counts the cost of following Christ. Now, this isn't meant to imply that following Jesus is only worth so much and nothing more. Instead, counting the cost uh, is intended to awaken us to the reality that a life of discipleship encompasses the totality of your life. I really appreciate how Tim Keller put it when he said that, that many people 
want to negotiate the cost rather than count it. That is, they're willing to give up things, sure, but they're not willing to give up the right to determine what those things are. So following Jesus involves full surrender, even as we just sung. I surrender all. Following Jesus means that we yield to Jesus fully, which of course requires full trust in Him. It says that Peter and Andrew left their nets, while James and John left the boat and their father. Now this was a big deal. These men left their family and their livelihood behind. They still loved their family and would still care for their family as best they could, but they entrusted themselves and their families to Christ. In effect, hear this, they denied themselves what was known and comfortable and trusted Jesus with their very lives. I want you to hear a story about a woman named Ion. Ion is part of a tribe who, I'm sorry, part of a people who pride themselves on being 100% Muslim. To belong to Ion's tribe is to be Muslim. Ion's personal, personal identity, familial honor, relational standing, and social status are all inextricably intertwined with Islam. Simply put, if Ion ever leaves her faith, she will immediately lose her life. If Ion's family ever finds out that she is no longer a Muslim, they will slit her throat without question or hesitation. Now, I want you to imagine having a conversation with Ion about Jesus. And you start telling her how God loves her so much and that He sent His only Son to die on the cross for her sins as her Savior. And as you speak, you can sense something in her heart that's softening to what you're saying. And at the same time, however, you can feel that her spirit is trembling as she contemplates what it would cost her to follow Christ. And so with fear in her heart and and faith, She asks, how do I become a Christian? Now you have two options at that point in your response to Ion. You can tell her how easy it is to become a Christian. That if she will simply assent to certain truths and repeat a particular prayer, she can be saved. That's all it takes. Or your second option is to tell Ion the truth. You can tell Ion that in the gospel, God is calling her to die. To die to her life, to die to her family, to die to her friends, to die to her future, but in dying to live, to live in Jesus, to live as part of a global family that includes every tribe, to live with friends who spanned every age, to live in a future where joy will last forever. Ion is not imaginary. She's a real woman who made a real choice to become a Christian, to die to herself, 
and to live in Christ no matter what it cost her. Because of her decision, she was forced to flee her family and became isolated from her friends, and yet she's now working strategically and sacrificially for the spread of the gospel among her own people. The risk is high as every day she dies to herself all over again in order to live in Christ. If anyone would come after me, Jesus once said, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily, daily, and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. It's paradox. Walking with Christ by faith means relinquishing control to Him, and yet in relinquishing control, we discover the life we truly want and need. That's Ion's story, and that's the story of these first four disciples. Have you ever realized that sometimes it's easier to trust Jesus with your eternity than with your daily life? But we can trust Jesus today and all of our tomorrows. You can trust Him with all your health needs, all your material needs, all your relational needs. You can trust Him with all the needs of your family and your friends. You can trust Him with the many needs represented in the church. You can trust Christ with all of these and more. You can trust Him with when pressures mount and anxieties threaten. You can trust Him in stress and distress and all types of suffering because Jesus Christ has suffered for you. And when you breathe your last on this earth, you can trust Him still. You can trust Him in death because He has conquered death. You can trust Him then and now because He is yours and you are His by God's grace if indeed you follow Him by faith. Who wouldn't want to follow this Jesus? So as you count the cost, even this morning, I want to ask you what nets do you need to drop and leave behind to follow them as to follow him as they did the second characteristic of true disciples is that they attach themselves to and identify with the person of Christ they attach themselves to and identify with the person of Christ you know I think I've shared with you before I think I have the, uh, the story about the zoo in China that was caught trying to pass off one animal for another. Did I share this? Does this sound familiar at all? You've got to hear this story. It happened a few years ago, true story, in August of 2013, when onlookers standing before the lion habitat were surprised when the so-called lion began barking. Because the lion was no lion at all, but rather a Tibetan mastiff. This large breed dog that was being posed as a lion. And this wasn't the only instance, apparently. For in that same zoo, a fox was passed off as a leopard. 
another dog was being billed as a wolf. And in the reptile house, some snakes had been replaced with giant sea cucumbers. The zoo's response? Well, we're just doing the best we can in these tough economic times. And I share that partly because it is funny. And partly because it's not funny at all. In fact, aren't we, aren't people sometimes guilty of basically the same thing? Do we ever pretend when it comes to Christianity? Do we ever claim to be Christian or pass ourselves off as Christian, but really, we really have no interest in following Christ? It would seem, seem so. You know, the large majority of Americans still identify themselves as Christian. And yet the country has obviously moved into a post-Christian era. How can this be? In preparing to leave for Zambia, I read that 75 to 95 percent of Zambians, that's, that's a huge number, 75 to 95 percent of Zambians are professed Christians. However, many of these professions are more social conversions than spiritual ones. And I think the same could be said for America. The call to discipleship is ultimately a call to Christ Himself. Follow me, Jesus said to them. And they, after leaving their things behind, followed him. Truth is, we need someone to follow. Because we're created with the desire for meaningful relational connection. I actually think that's one reason why social media impacts us as it does. But our relationships on the horizontal level can never truly meet the underlying spiritual need. And so while in those days, following a specific rabbi meant identifying with him and his views on life, Jesus calls us to follow because he is life. And because he ushers in new life that reaches us at the core level. There isn't a religion in the world that that doesn't acknowledge that we as human beings need help and hope. Hindus believe in the power of the Ganges, the Ganges River, which for them represents the goddess Ganga. And so they pay homage to the Ganges and go through various purification rituals in the waters of the Ganges in the hope of attaining salvation. Muslims pray at five specifically appointed times each day because according to the Quran, this merits the favor of Allah. 
Buddhists adhere to an eightfold path in the attempt to escape sin and suffering and reach a state of nirvana. Sikhs adhere to the teaching of ten gurus who collectively uh, tried to address the human need. But the driving force behind each of these is the belief that that, that you can earn your way, that that you should learn more, do more, try harder, and maybe, just maybe, it'll work in your favor in the end. And yet, despite our many religious attempts, the human need remains. We need a new way. We need Him who is the way. So unlike every other religion, Christianity does not call you to follow this or that practice, but rather to follow the person of Jesus Christ. I want you to know that Christian discipleship does not begin with you inviting Jesus into your life, but with Jesus inviting you into His. That's critical. Follow me, He says. Follow me. Come to me, he said elsewhere. All of you, all who labor and are heavy laden, that means all who strive in their own strength and have grown weary doing so, come to me, all of you, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in spirit, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And the yoke, of course, was used to harness two animals together so that they would begin to work as one. And for instance, an older, stronger, well-trained ox would be yoked to a younger one so that over time the younger would learn from the older and actually become like the older You know, in the Christian sense, Jesus yokes himself to those he calls and thus calls us to take his yoke upon ourselves. Meaning that the one who follows Jesus actually becomes more like Jesus. So the things that characterize Jesus begin to characterize you. There's an amazing promise contained within Christ's call here in Matthew chapter 4. The promise that He will guide you and shape you to become the person that God has created you to be. He says, I will make you. I will make you. I will make you you. Affirming that transformation is God's work and that we are objects of God's love and grace. The Bible says that when you come to Christ, God begins a good work in you and that God himself will bring it to completion that we are God's workmanship. I love how C.S. Lewis put it using the illustration of a house under construction. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. And God comes in to rebuild that house. And at first, perhaps, you can understand what He's doing. You get it. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that 
those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But then he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts and doesn't seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to, Lewis says? The explanation is that he's building a quite different house from the one you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You see, you thought you were going to be made into a nice, decent little cottage. But no, no, no. He's making you into a palace. And he intends to come and live in it himself. Consider how God transformed these first four disciples. Peter denied and deserted the Lord at his darkest hour. But by God's transforming grace, it was Peter who preached the first sermon in the history of the church by which 3,000 were saved. Peter became a pillar in the church and wrote the New Testament letters that bear his name. Many believe he's the voice behind the Gospel of Mark. At the end of his life, according to tradition, Peter chose to be crucified upside down because he didn't count himself worthy to die as Jesus did. Consider Andrew. Andrew's not as prominent in the New Testament as the other three, but he's no less important. Usually when we see Andrew in Scripture, he's seen bringing other people to Jesus. It's believed he took the gospel to Asia and gave his life doing so, eventually crucified in Greece. Consider James. Affectionately known as James the Great, he too became a pillar in the early church, a pastor, really, For the early Christian believers, James was the first of the twelve to be martyred, beheaded under King Herod. But James was beloved by the believers, and his martyrdom, even amidst growing persecution, actually caused Christianity to spread like wildfire. And then John. John shared a very close relationship with Jesus, often calling himself the apostle whom Jesus loved. He was just blown away continually that God, that Jesus would love even him. He wrote the fourth gospel, the three epistles that bear his name in the final book of Revelation. It's believed that John founded the churches of Smyrna, Pergamos, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, and Thyatira. Now these were just common fishermen, remember. Just everyday people like you and me. And yet upon coming to Christ and identifying with Christ, they were undeniably transformed by the grace of God. Within a few short years, these ordinary men, when you read through the book of Acts, these ordinary men were standing before some of the most powerful rulers on earth, accused of turning the world upside down. What began with a simple call to Jesus changed their lives and ultimately their world. And this brings us to the third distinguishing mark of a disciple. I love the play on words in verse 19. Did you catch this? They were fishermen. And to them Jesus said, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. 
This shows that God's transforming work in our lives is to have a transforming effect in the lives of others. Or said another way, a disciple of Christ works to advance the cause of Christ. Furthering Christ's work includes His work in the local church and then through the church to reach the world. It means participating in church life by investing in the lives of others while receiving from them their investments into yours. We all need the support and example of other Christ followers. We all need to see ourselves as participants in the church, each part doing its part as God supplies and strengthens. And when we work together, we further the work of Christ in the church and then around the world. People sometimes talk about mission statements. A mission statement is a relatively concise statement that conveys one's purpose and practice. I I did a little Google searching. Share with you some of my findings. Coca-Cola's mission statement. To refresh the world. To inspire moments of optimism and happiness. To create value and make a difference. Don't you feel like a difference maker when you drink a Coca-Cola product? (laughs) Starbucks says, To inspire and nurture the human spirit, one person, one cup, one neighborhood at a time. Nike says, to bring inspiration and innovation to every athlete in the world. And then they add, if you have a body, you are an athlete. (laughs) And obviously the common thread woven through each of these statements is they each express a desire to inspire by their very nature, that's what mission statements do. They mean to inspire you towards something better and more purposeful. And so here at East Parkway, we've been talking about how we want to be engaged in fulfilling the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. The great commandment, of course, is to love God with everything you have and with all that you are. And the great commission is to go and make disciples of all nations, including our own. And so what inspires me, and we're talking about inspiring, something that's what inspires me about this is that in the time between Matthew 4 when Jesus called the first disciples and Matthew 28 when he commissioned them and once the Holy Spirit came upon them, these followers of Christ actually became fishers of men. They became who Jesus said they would become. 
I've heard preachers use or stretch this metaphor of fishing for men by talking about how we need to know the water where the fish reside and which fish swim in which waters and which bait to use for which fish. Now, maybe there's some value to that discussion, but that's not really what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is saying here is that the transformation that God works in your life is meant to multiply as you touch the lives of others. I want to say that again. What Jesus is saying here is that the transformation that God is working in your life is meant to multiply as you touch the lives of others. Take this world in which we live and strip away all the glitter and glamour, all the tinsel and veneer. When removing the facade, we find brokenness and heartache and anxiety and sadness and depression and captivity and bondage. And we know that Jesus left the riches of heaven to step into a world like that. And those who follow Jesus are called to do the same, to step out from the church into a world like that. People need truth and hope and help and life. And so he says to us, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I will transform you, he says, and I will transform others through you, through your example. Count the cost. Count the cost and find Jesus to be worth it all. Like the man who found the treasure hidden in the field and gladly sold all he had. Or the, the merchant who found the pearl of greatest price. Identify with Christ and know that you are God's workmanship. That Jesus yokes himself to you and walks with you and is teaching you. Learn from him. As you become more and more, as you conform to His image, become more and more Christ-like, and then advance the cause of Christ each day, and know that God will gift and equip you for the work. Follow me. Follow me. Jesus calls out to us. Will you answer the call? Answer the call. Amen. God, we thank you for these moments. We would ask for your strength and grace and help. That we indeed would count the cost. I love the picture here of how the disciples, these early disciples, immediately left everything. And yet we know as we read through the rest of the gospel record, we know that for some... It wasn't as immediate, but they counted the cost nonetheless. And it's better to count it and take your time than to never count it at all. Help us even this morning to identify with Christ as we leave this place. It's, it's easy to identify with Jesus in this room. But as we leave this building and go into our various spheres of life, will you help us to identify with Christ even there and then with people who may not believe or think the way we do. Give us strength for that. 
And then will you please equip us and strengthen us and help us to advance your cause in this world? That we would see ourselves in a very real way as fishers of men so the transforming effect, the transforming work you're doing in us would effectively help transform the world. May you receive all the glory for the call is yours. And we come to you. Amen.